welcome to episode 54 of Bookum Dano, an old Hawaii Five-O podcast. I am your petty and heady host, Kristen Haas, aka Kiki Writes. Season 5 rolls on with a couple of big plan episodes. Episode 5, The Gin That Clears the Way, and Episode 6, Fools Die Twice. And once again, I'm here to remind you that I am recording with the windows open because it is a nice day. Unfortunately, I'm also recording this on the Friday before like one of the biggest weekends in my town, so there's a lot more traffic than usual. So please enjoy the dulcet tones of the highway behind my house. Anyway, you're used to tuning the background noise out. Let's go to Hawaii. We're in big trouble, Steve. What was stolen, John? A device. A prototype for an ICBM guidance system. Strategic importance is impossible to measure. This device, the unit, was the size of two packages of cigarettes, Steve. Yet it would replace a unit of about 36 cubic feet. Then the entire missile could be scaled down. More mobility, less fuel. That's right. A device must be recovered, and quickly. Season 5, Episode 5, The Gin Who Clears the Way. Air date October 10th, 1972. Directed by Harry Falk. This is his only episode of Hawaii Five-O. And written by John D.F. Black. This is his 10th of 10 episodes. The sign says U.S. property, no trespassing, but judging by the slew of dead guards beyond the fence and in the building, I'd say somebody done trespassed. Two masked men have broken into a safe and stolen something. As they make their escape, it would seem that one of the guards isn't as dead as previously thought. The first thief, Carl II, jumps the fence, but as the second guy starts to climb, Carl shoots him. He hustles to a car and passes the stolen box to none other than Wofat. The alarm blaring signals that they failed to kill all of the guards successfully, which does not please Wofat. Wofat and his thief Carl speed off. Steve is on the scene acting under the authority of State Department prick Jonathan Kay. They're keeping this hush-hush. The body will be checked in as a John Doe killed in an auto accident. The body has the idea of, like, six guys on him, but Steve knows him. He's a mediocre safecracker named Connor that Steve knows wasn't smart or connected enough to pull this off, which means whoever he was working with most likely killed him. Wofat is unhappy that they have to go to a contingency plan because Carl, too, failed to kill all of the military guards. He wants to talk to that American lad, Tom Wong, a disillusioned Maoist. The phone rings and Wolfat accurately predicts that it's a call saying Steve has left the scene and is on his way to Diamond Head. At Diamond Head, Steve meets with Jonathan Kay. The stolen device is a prototype of a missile guidance system that's the size of two cigarette packs, pocket-sized, which means it could be in anyone's pocket. The governor is putting this investigation in Steve's hands and he has to get that device back at any cost. Wolfat talks to Tom Wong on the beach. Wolfat plays on his Maoist beliefs. Tom wants to use force to bring about the Mao dream, but Wolfat explains that he has to wait until his time comes and be prepared to do what must be done. While Danny follows up on where Connor lived and Steve coordinates with the FBI to run down Connor's movements for the last six months, Wolfat gives a new assignment to Carl. His new target? George Wong, Tom's brother. Carl waits in a car for George to come out of the building and then runs him down. 
He bungles this assignment, too, by hitting another car and taking off on foot. He goes back and informs Wofat that George Wong is either dead or dying, neglecting to mention that he was seen at the crash. Wofat is thrilled. At a conference of investigative minds, the FBI finds that Connor was a loner and he has no file in the CIA or Navy intelligence. Chin comes in and tells Steve that the phone number in Connor's possession was a phone booth, but Che is still checking it for prints. He then informs Steve that his cousin George Wong was killed in a hit and run, and he'd like to work with HPD on it if he can be spared. Steve grants his request on the condition that Chin check in just in case they need him. The assembled group tries to figure out who might have hired Connor. Whoever it was knew exactly how to get in and exactly what to grab. The list of countries is long. Steve naturally suspects Wofat, especially after it's established they don't know where he is. Jay calls in about some flower trace. It's a rare African violet that has to be cultivated. Steve sends Ben and Duke to check it out. Wofat receives a message from P. King that they're displeased with the trail of bodies that he's left in his wake, and they expect him to personally deliver the device. Wofat is amused that now they're upset with bodies. They make his job so difficult. Chin arrives at the Wong family house to give his condolences to his uncle. Tom is taking the death hard. George's father is being brave and stoic. Chin assures his uncle that justice will be done. There was a time when Uncle Wong would have sought vengeance, but thinks now it would have a bitter taste. Wofat meets with Tom on the beach again and extends his condolences about his brother, feigning ignorance and asking how it happened. Tom tells him that it was a hit and run, but they have the driver's car and description so the police should find him. Wofat says it's most fortunate, but probably not for Carl, too. Wofat and his entourage arrive at Carl's place, and Wofat expresses his displeasure. He was identified, and that puts the whole plan in jeopardy. Even though Carl could be on a plane in an hour, he won't be. Chow Lee sees to that. Five-O shows up on the scene. Carl raised orchids and African violets, and it's possible that one of those plants links to the trace on Connor. Che also finds some charred remains of paper, and Chow Lee left the gun. He's got a lot of forensic work to do. The feds have tracked Wolfat's movements, and they're pretty sure he was on his way to Hawaii. Danny comes in with the ID on Carl II, hired killer. He got sloppy. Wolfat doesn't do sloppy. This case is top priority. They need every man on it. Meanwhile, Wolfat makes arrangements for the next part of his plan. Unfortunately, Mr. Wong is going to die in his sleep. And that's going to make Tom even easier to manipulate. There is always a certain amount of glee that I experience when I see that an episode of Hawaii Five-O is going to be a Wofat episode. Because I love Wofat. Because Wofat is very extra. He's incredibly theatrical. He is grand in the grandest sense of villains. But what's magnificent about him, truly aside from being just an excellent adversary for Steve McGarrett, is that despite all of his grandness and extraness and the wild-ass plans and plots that he ends up being involved in, there's something still very believable about this man. It's just so easy for you just to go along with why, yes, he is a Chinese super spy. Absolutely, we believe whatever he comes up with. That's the thing is that the, a lot of the military stuff and spiness in the, of the plots that he is involved in is kind of 
they can be kind of out there, but Wolfat grounds that. He's just a superb character. So I'm always like super excited when Wolfat shows up because you know there's going to be shenanigans. And the interesting thing about this particular episode is that there's actually not really intended shenanigans happening because it's a pretty straightforward plot on Wolfat's end. He's hired Carl Tu, who is a, I think they say he's a Taiwanese national who is a hired killer. And then they get a local guy, safe cracker named Connor, and they break into this military establishment. I think it's a a military testing site that's supposed to be highly secure and clearly is not. And they steal this prototype of a military, of a missile guidance device. So it's actually pretty straightforward. You get an interesting insight into Wofat's morals with this episode, and I don't know if most people catch it, because... All of the guards are supposed to be killed. And the reason why this plan goes into shenanigans territory is because Carl II borked it and one of the guards did not die and he was able to ring the alarm. But when Steve and the MP are recapping the break-in, they make sure to point out that all of the guards were killed. I'm guessing that the, the one who lived long enough to pull the alarm eventually succumbed to his wounds. All of the guards, by the way, we have the the typical 1970s bright red blood. It's almost all in the same spot on each guard's uniform. It's magnificent. But they make sure to point out that all of the guards were killed, but the guard dogs, because we do see one guard dog, they point out that all of the guard dogs were tranquilized. They were darted. And I find that interesting, especially when we get further into the episode and Wofat has Tom Wong's brother and father both murdered and he's killed all of these guards, but he will not have the dogs killed. That's just an interesting, to me, that's an interesting insight into someone's morals, that people are disposable, but the animals, well, it's not their fault they were hired to be guard dogs. We'll spare them. Anyway, all of the guards are supposed to be killed, but obviously one is not. And as they're jumping the fence, now, I don't believe that that was actually the actor playing Carl II jumping the fence originally. That was Danny Camcona. Maybe it was. I don't know. But he did an amazing jump and sprint over a chain link fence that was topped with barbed wire. Just a glorious vault. Easy peasy, like butter going right over it. Connors, who we find out later is Connor, passes the device over the fence. And as he's climbing the fence, Carl shoots him with his gun, which has a silencer on it, and leaves him hanging, caught on the barbed wire on the top of the fence. It's a fabulous visual. I love it. And then he delivers the device to Wolfat. We discover this is all Wolfat. And we are all very excited about this because Wolfat means shenanigans. The alarm goes off. Wolfat is very disappointed by this. And they zoom off into the night. Now, here's the thing. If this plan had gone off without a hitch, then Wolfat, I'm guessing, would have just gotten into his little sub and went off to Peking. But because this didn't go off the way it was supposed to, now he has to get creative about smuggling this device out because people will be looking for it now, which kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it, because I'm guessing it has to do with sub rendezvous. That because the alarm went off much earlier than anticipated, the bodies were discovered much earlier than anticipated, the break-in was discovered much earlier than anticipated, Wolfat wasn't able to, I guess, deliver the device where he was supposed to. So I'm I'm guessing there was like a very slim window to get this device off Oahu. That's the only way it makes sense to me. But anyway, because Carl II borked it, 
Now they have to, to engage in an elaborate plot that Wofat is known for. And the basic plot of this, because you're kind of wondering what the point of what Wofat is doing when he's talking to Tom, who is a Maoist. Uh, Wofat makes a point of saying that he was that he's American, but he's very loyal to China and wishes to bring about the Maoist dream, I guess, to America. And he's willing to do it by force, but Wofat is a very calculated man. And he doesn't need Tom's force. He just needs Tom to be easily manipulated. And that's what you think is happening when George is killed and then later his father's killed. You're thinking that this is some kind of a manipulation ploy until we get to the point where no, it's even more calculated than that on how Wofat is going to use Tom. And it's a pretty ruthless. The man is incredibly ruthless. He is grand, he is theatrical, and he is ruthless. And that is why we love him. But you know, we need people here too. Americans like yourself who possess the truth. Otherwise, who will be waiting for that moment in time when a single act could progress our cause a thousand leagues? Oh, not just by inches, but by miles. What a heroic chance for a dedicated young man like yourself. There is no way to make them see. Only force. Each thing in its own time, Thomas. Your time will come, Thomas. Wait. And when it comes, you must be prepared to do what must be done. So in the meantime, we have 5-0 leading this investigation at the behest of State Department prick Jonathan Kay. They know what was taken, but they don't know by who. And the only lead they really have is Connor. And Connor is a known mediocre safecracker. So immediately, Steve's like, this dude is hired help. He ain't smart enough. He don't have the connections. My guy is low tier. And they have a certain amount of forensics with Connor, including trace from a very rare African violent that has to be cultivated. It just doesn't happen. That is the only forensic evidence they really have at that point. So they have all of these high-level people together from the FBI, from the Navy, from the CIA, trying to figure out who Connor would have been working with and who would benefit from possessing this prototype for this missile guidance system that can fit in your pocket. If you have really big pockets, it's not going to fit into girl jean pockets. Anyway. All right, gentlemen, to get back to question number one, who benefits most from having this device? As I said, any government with an intercontinental ballistic missile. Any government? That's a pretty big spread. All right, let's narrow it down with a calculated guess. Where is Wolfat? I want to know how many times like stuff like this comes up in episodes that we don't see. But something shady like this happens and Steve immediately thinks Wolfat. Like, it's just his default thinking. Wolfat, where is Wolfat? And the best part is, is that they don't know where Wolfat is. And when they finally track down Wolfat's movements, because there's an argument about where he is, when they finally track out down his movements, we find out that Wolfat actually has two doubles in addition to his sub. He has all of the greatest accessories. I mean, aren't you jealous? I am. And someone has just started watching jump scare videos very loudly in the next room. Sorry about that. I have completely lost the plot of what I was talking about. So, 5-0 has this investigation going on with all of these agencies. They don't have a lot of forensic evidence to go on. And in the middle of this, we have Chin Ho come in and say that, tragically, his cousin George Wong has been killed in a hit and run. Now, the running gag throughout the series is that Chin Ho is related to everybody. And in this case, it's used to a rather tragic effect. 
So Steve grants Chin permission to work with HPD to find out who killed his cousin, and Chin goes to pay his respects to his Uncle Wong. And Uncle Wong, apparently, he's old school, and says that in the past he would have sought vengeance for this, but now he feels that it just would leave a bitter taste in his mouth. And it's also pointed out that Tom is devastated by his brother's death, despite the fact that his brother George was not a Maoist. They did not see eye to eye on their politics at all. And then later, when Uncle Wong is murdered, he's smothered with his pillow by Chow Lee. And it, it, necess- it doesn't necessarily look that suspicious because Uncle Wong is older and his son, his eldest son, just passed in a very tragic fashion. It, his heart could have easily given out. But by this point, Fibo has made the connection between Carl II and George Wong's death. Because when Wofat goes to pay his condolences to Tom on his brother's death and Fiend's ignorance about how George came to his demise, he finds out from Tom that Carl II was not telling the exact truth when he reported to him that George was either dead or dying. He apparently had told Wofat that he'd crashed the car. He did not say that he'd been seen, and he had been seen by multiple witnesses. And Wolfat finds this out from Tom when Tom is telling him that the police feel they, they will capture the culprit because they have his car that he wrecked, and they also have several witnesses. I think Wolfat is more pissed about finding out about Carl II's cock-up from Tom than he, he didn't find it out from Carl himself. So he and Chow Lee go pay a visit to Carl, and it doesn't work out well for him. That was a mistake on your part, Carl. Your second mistake. It was an accident. Semantics, Tom! The truth of the situation is very real. You were seen. If you are identified, our entire plan is jeopardized. Wolfhead, no! I can be on a plane to Australia in an hour! You could be, Carl. But you'll not be. Five O gets called in on Carl's death because they find African violets and orchids in his apartment, and they feel that these could be linked to the African violet that they found on Connor. Here's what I love, is that you have this cold-blooded killer who is apparently not that great at his job, considering he has made two screw-ups in a row. His hobby is cultivating orchids and African violets. Because of course it is. So Che is able to tie Carl II in to both the murder of George Wong and the murder of Connor because Chow Lee leaves the gun with the silencer and that is the gun that killed Connor. So logic would dictate that Carl II burned Connor and somebody burned Carl II. And they know that somebody is Wofat, but they have to find Wofat. So then we know that George Wong is connected in all of this because of Carl too. Then Uncle Wong dies. They get Doc out of bed to perform an autopsy on Uncle Wong. And Steve asks Chin if anyone in the family objected to an autopsy being done. And he says that no, no one did. They thought it was a little unusual, but nobody objected to it. And the autopsy turns up that Uncle Wong was smothered. He didn't die of a heart attack. So this is pretty difficult for Chen because now two of his relatives are dead, his, his cousin and his uncle, and it is likely that his other cousin, Tom, is somehow involved in this because they know he is a Maoist. They know Wolfat is involved, 
it's entirely possible that these two things are connected. So he has Chin pick up Tom for questioning. They don't want to tip off Wofat that there is anything amiss. And so Steve says, pick him up under the guise that five O is helping him to get the special permit that he will need to bury his father because Uncle Wong's wishes were to be buried in Taiwan and you'll ne- they would need a special permit to take the body over there. Steve has a theory about how all of this ties together and it turns out he's right. And that is what we think is emotional manipulation to a greater end when it comes to Wofat and Tom. And we just don't know what that greater end is and how that plays in with the missile guidance thing. It turns out that Wofat knows that Uncle Wong wants to be buried in Taiwan. He could smuggle the device in the coffin because it is the size of two cigarette packs, as they keep saying. He could smuggle that out of the country in the coffin. But in order for that to happen... It falls upon the eldest son to carry out the father's wishes for burial. George Wong would never go along with smuggling out this device. Tom would because it's for the greater good of the Maoist dream. And so now we know George Wong had to be eliminated to make Tom the eldest son. And Daddy Wong needed to be eliminated. So we have a casket that we can take over to Taiwan. That was the, that is the elaborate plan B that Wolfat referred to after Carl II's first screw up. And Steve is on this wavelength as well. He admits it's a far out theory, but he believes it's the right one because he knows Wolfat. So Chin brings Tom in for questioning and it doesn't take very long to convince Steve that Tom did not know that his brother or his father were murdered or were going to be murdered by Wolfat that he is being used. And they lay out all of these facts for Tom, and he is really struggling to believe that a comrade would do this to him. The only way he is going to know for sure is if he asks Wofat. You know who else I find grand and fabulous? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. Jonathan Kay was played by Joseph Sorolla. This is his fifth of five episodes. Tom Wong was played by Soon Tech O. This is his fifth of eight episodes. Carl Two was played by Danny Kamakona. This is his thirteenth of thirty-three episodes. Chow Lee, aka Assassin Number One, was played by Robert Nelson. This is his third of three episodes. We also saw him in 92nd War, Parts 1 and 2. Commander Smollett was played by Robert Withens. This is his fifth of 10 episodes. George Wong was played by Andy Ichiki. This is his first of two episodes. The CIA agent was played by Don Baker. This is his first of two episodes. Colonel Cole was played by Howard Gottschalk. This is his fourth of six episodes. Parker was played by Mitch Mitchell. This is his sixth of 15 episodes. Sims was played by Ted Scott. This is his second of seven episodes. We also saw him in Is This Any Way to Run a Paradise? Mr. Wong was played by C.K. Huang. This is his second of six episodes. We also saw him in Sweet Terror. Assassin number two was played by Clement Lowe. This is his first of three episodes. He was also in the miniseries From Here to Eternity. 
And the MP captain was played by Joe Moore. This is his second of 11 episodes. We also saw him in Skinhead. Our director, Harry Falk, only directed one episode of Hawaii Five-O, but he has directing credits for three episodes of The Patty Duke Show, five episodes of The Doris Day Show, two episodes of Get Smart, four episodes of The Flying Nun, four episodes of Love American Style, three episodes of The Young Rebels, three episodes of The Partridge Family, seven episodes of The Courtship of Eddie's Father, eight episodes of Owen Marshall, Counselor at Law, seven episodes of The Rookies, three episodes of SWAT, two episodes of Harry O, three episodes of Macmillan and Wife, two episodes of Jigsaw John, two episodes of Bert D'Angelo, Superstar, two Two episodes of Rich Man, Poor Man, Book 2, 11 episodes of The Streets of San Francisco, two episodes of What Really Happened to the Class of 65, two episodes of The Rockford Files, two episodes of Emerald Point NAS, two episodes of Magnum P.I., three episodes of The Yellow Rose, two episodes of T.J. Hooker, 15 episodes of The Colbys, two episodes of Dynasty, four episodes of Hotel, two episodes of A Man Called Hawk, and two episodes of The Magical World of Disney. He also has directing credits for the TV movies Three's a Crowd, The Death Squad, The Abduction of St. Anne, The Andros Targets, Mandrake, The Night the City Screamed, Hear No Evil, North Beach and Rawhide, and High Desert Kill. And he also has directing credits for the miniseries The Sophisticated Gents and Centennial. And that is the Jin who clears the way. Absolutely enjoy this episode. It's a woe fat episode. I mean, it's pretty much guaranteed that it's going to be a good time because things are always bigger and brighter when woe fat is involved. We also have a nice emotional element when it comes to Chin Ho because his family is deeply affected by woe fat's shenanigans in this episode. And we also get a great investigation done by Five O. There's a lot of forensic work. Che was very, very busy during this episode. Now you might be thinking, hey, State Department prick Jonathan Kay wasn't a prick in this episode. Well, don't worry. He definitely was. So give this one a watch. Okay, get it off right away and uh, mark the request uh, A6K. Special code numbers. What's the big deal? You're not supposed to ask that, Che. Excuse me, I didn't ask. Just listen, McGarris, don't interrupt. I'm only going to say this once. At three this afternoon, there's going to be a hit. A hit. So big, it'll rock this island. If you're interested, be at your desk at 2.30. That's when you'll receive my next instructions. Now, McGarris, <laughs> if you think I'm a crank, you fit this in your sights. Think about the three automatic rifles somebody lifted from Camp Kimberley a month ago. I couldn't have read about it in the papers, could I? wasn't released to the papers, now was it? <laughs> Episode 6, Fools Die Twice, air date October 17th, 1972, directed by Michael O'Hurley. This is his 19th of 36 episodes and written by Abram S. Guinness. This is his third of three episodes. Jack Gully roughly kicks out his sorta gal, Lana Trotter, because he's got people coming over. He assures her that he likes her while he sets up a screen. Meanwhile, Kira Johnson sees her leave from a phone booth and calls in her license plate asking for a favor. He then joins Jack and a couple of other guys, Johnny and Mac. They seem to be putting together some kind of heist on a military base. Once they leave, Jack calls his Russian contact, who knows he's been shopping to the Chinese. But Jack isn't in it for the money. He's doing this for his own pleasure. <laughs> 
At 5.0 headquarters, Steve and the team are listening to a recording of a phone call saying there will be a hit at 3 this afternoon. The caller says for Steve to be at his desk at 2.30 and he'll call with the next instructions. He also mentions some stolen rifles that weren't reported in the press. The phone call arrives and Steve points out, you're late. The caller doesn't rattle that easily. He tells Steve to get his team out to the old battery. It would usually take them about 25 minutes, but the caller says they'll make it in 20. And when they do, they'll see. Watch the birdie. A delivery truck arrives at some apparent road construction. (laughs) No, that's just Johnson and his pals. They take the truck at gunpoint. While Jack is busy typing away at his desk on the military base, the heisted delivery truck makes it through base security. The marching band plays a jaunty tune while the delivery truck drives past Jack, who's gotten up from his desk and gone outside to see that they're on time. 5-0 arrives at the old battery as instructed at 5-3, just in time to see an army helicopter fly overhead. It's the payroll copter. Steve gets a call from their anonymous caller saying that Kira Johnson is going to heist the payroll. A silly crime, since the Army doesn't use cash. They've been had. The fake delivery guys unload as the payroll copter comes in for landing. Jack heads to his car, checking his watch before driving away. The payroll soldiers take the payroll bags into the payroll office, where they're overtaken by Johnson, Mac, and Johnny. Mac gets so excited that he rips open the payroll bags to see the $4 million they're stealing. But it's just paper. No cash. 5-0 arrives with the MPs surrounding the payroll office, telling them to come out the places surrounded. Mac flips out and starts shooting. Johnson joins him, and soon we've got a full-tilt volley happening. Mac gets killed, then Johnny gets hit in the hand and full-on panics about it. He'll fly the copter, but no more shooting. Johnson then gets the bright idea to use the payroll soldiers as hostages to try to get to the copter. Danny takes a sniper position, and Johnson comes out with the hostages, Johnny in the lead. Steve lets them pass to the helicopter, but Johnny freaks out and tries to take off without Johnson. Johnson shoots him, which gets him shot by Danny. Johnson tries to shoot Danny, but Steve shoots him. And then Danny shoots him again. The hostage crisis is over. But it's really just beginning. Because while all of this was happening, Jack has kidnapped Dr. Frank Clapton and spirited him away in his car to a big old boat. Clapton is a genius computer programmer, and he's very valuable. Today. But tomorrow, he might not be. There might not be room in the army for guys who want to win wars. And they'll promise you a cushy civilian desk job, and you'll take your discontent out on your family, and they'll end up leaving you. And frankly, this seems like a whole lot of projection to me. Jack calls Steve and asks for $1 million in compensation, or Dr. Clapton goes to a hostile government. He wants diamonds instead of therapy. And Steve has until 9 tomorrow morning to get the diamonds from the Vanderforts. Steve asks Jenny to call State Department prick Jonathan Kay. He then asks Ben to get on any ship-to-shore calls that might have come into the office, and also to check into the Vanderboards. The best lead they have right now is the tapes of the call. The voice print isn't useful because the caller is disguising his voice. They've got to figure out what else is going on in the background of this tape if they're going to pinpoint where he's calling from. Jonathan Kay is on the line, and he is adamant that they pay the ransom and get Dr. Clapton back. They'll use the Hawaii Stock Exchange to get the money for the diamonds. Nothing else matters. Meanwhile, Johnson survives the surgery and eventually comes to. Steve tells him that his heist was a diversion. His friend bragged about being so smart and Kira being so dumb. Steve asks who set him up. Kira doesn't answer. He also doesn't stick around to heal. 
know me. I love a big, elaborate plan. And what makes this big, elaborate plan even better than what it already is, is that it's being enacted by Clue Gulliger. Clue Gulliger was somewhat long hair, even, which is kind of weird to me because I'm used to see him with short, neat haircuts. So to see him with the flowing locks, just glorious. But anyway, this plan, this payroll heist that we see, ends up all being a ruse. And it's a cover for a kidnapping. And it's brilliantly done the way it's enacted because we're right along with Kira and his buddies thinking that this is legitimate. That they're going to heist the payroll from this military base, this army base. And the episode starts really weirdly because it starts in what is actually Lana's apartment with Clue Gulliger kicking her out saying that she has to leave because he has company coming over and he's setting up this movie screen and he's being a real abusive jackass and it starts out so abruptly and you have just no context for anything that's going on. You don't know who these people are. You don't know why Clue Guler is being such a dick to Lana. And he says to her, after he calls her nothing, literally says that. Jack, why do you say things like that to me? I'm a person like anybody else. You're what you are. You're nothing. You're zip. You're zero. Hey, Lana. You don't have to believe this, but I really do like you. Yeah, I like you. I really do. Yes, sir, baby, I like you. Really? You really like her, but you're also going to be an emotionally abusive prick interesting approach that ultimately leads in part to your downfall. But anyway, so we see these, the group come in and they go through the beats of this heist via slideshow. I love that sort of thing where we have this elaborate heist planned. We have to go through the plot and we're going to do it with slides. Hell yeah. If a heist needs a slideshow, it is a good heist. So they go through the beats of this and then Kira and his friends leave. Now, Kira asks, calls somebody when Lana leaves and asks for a favor about to get her license plate, I guess, to know who she is. But nothing ever comes of that. So I'm not sure what the point of that was. But anyway, they leave and Jack calls his Russian contact. So we know that now this has to do with espionage and treason. The Russian voice on the other end of the line is like, we know that you've been shopping around to the Chinese as well. This isn't a supermarket, my guy. And Jack makes it very clear this isn't about the money for him. He's doing it for his own pleasure. When someone says that, now we know that they're on a level of unhinged. This has an emotional psychological component that cannot be reasoned with. Meanwhile, at 5.0 headquarters, we have the team reviewing a phone call, an anonymous tip that they got, stating that there was going to be a heist going down at 3 o'clock and to be by his desk at 2.30 for another phone call. And that phone call comes and instructs them to go out to the old battery and watch the birdie. The birdie happens to be the payroll helicopter going in. And Steve gets a call from the anonymous caller. If you haven't watched the episode and you're wondering how this possible, this call could possibly happen without the advent of cell phones, he calls into Central Dispatch and Central Dispatch puts the call through to Steve's car. So that's how he's able to communicate with them and says, yeah, that's the hit. They're going to steal the payroll. The thing is, is that the payroll is not in cash. 
they haven't paid in cash in years at that particular army base. So this is a bullshit heist. But Steve and friends still go out to the base and and join up with the MPs. And the thing is, is that this is obviously a diversionary tactic. Kira and his friends were supposed to be caught to distract the MPs and 5-0 from the kidnapping of Dr. Clapton. But the thing is, is that there might not have been a hostage situation, except when Kira and his pals get into the payroll office, Mac is so excitable about seeing $4 million that he rips open the bag. He doesn't even finish tying up his dude correctly. He rips open the bag and finds out it's nothing but paper, and they realize they've been had. And by that point, it is way too late, because the place is now surrounded by MPs and 5-0, and they're screwed. And Mac flips his shit, grabs one of the, uh, I'm guessing an AK, punches out the glass and starts shooting. And Kira's like, okay, what? why not? Why not? And he starts shooting. Now, Johnny, the helicopter pilot, is like totally not on board with all of this violence. But after Mac goes down, he does shoot out the window a couple of times and he ends up getting grazed in the hand for his troubles. And he just totally loses his mind. And refuses to keep shooting. And that's when Kira gets the idea. We'll use the payroll officers as hostages. And we will we'll make our way to the helicopter. Kira Johnson's a pretty big dude. It's Michael Conrad. He walks out with two of the hostages. Johnny is in front. Here's two of the hostages. He has a gun. He has the third hostage just slung over his shoulder casually. Like he's a scarf accessory. And they go walking out towards the helicopter. Danny has been sent to a sniper position when Kira announces they're coming out. And Steve tells him, do not take the shot unless you've got 100% clear, perfect shot. Don't take it. Steve and the MPs let Kira and company pass to the helicopter. So Johnny runs ahead. He gets in the helicopter and starts getting things ready. And as he sees Kira coming, he freaks out, panics, and starts the chopper. And everybody ducks. He goes to take off and Kira shoots him. And because Kira shoots him, and now the hostages are clear, Danny shoots Kira. Kira tries to shoot Danny. Steve shoots Kira. Then Danny shoots him again. And you see absolutely no blood. There is no blood shown. But we understand that Johnny is now dead, and Kira is mortally wounded. And the thing is, is they take Kira to the hospital, and the doctor is like, I don't know how he's still alive. He is a sieve. He has multiple holes in him. I don't know what's going on here. But he is currently comatose. We'll see what happens. By this point, 5-0 realizes this is a diversionary tactic and they realize what it's for when Dr. Clapton turns up missing because while all of this is happening, Clue Gulliger has gone down to Dr. Clapton's office. He's, t- he's knocked him out with chloroform. He's dropped him out of a window, a first floor window, taken him over to his station wagon, tossed him in the, you know, tied him up, bagged his head, tossed him in the back, and driven away while all of this chaos and commotion is going on over here. And he takes them out to a boat. Now, here's the thing. We have just seen Kira Johnson, who I said is a a large man, casually carrying a hostage out. We now have Clue Gulliger doing the same thing. Now, Dr. Clapton is is tied up in a gunny sack. And you see Clue Gulliger carrying this unconscious man in this gunny sack from the car, down the ramp to the boat, up a steep ladder into the boat and he has to get down into the hold of the boat with this person and the way he's carrying you're just like no that is not a human that is obviously a dummy because while i do not doubt that clue gulliger is a strong man 
I feel given the size of Dr. Clapton, not saying that Dr. Clapton is bad. I'm saying that height wise, body mass wise, he would have been struggling a little bit more, particularly trying to get this guy up a ladder. So it was just very interesting that you see Kira do this and then you see Clue Gulager do this and you're like, so someone has superhuman strength today. You know what? I can believe it. Not just because it's Clue Gulager, but also because spite and vengeance, they're great motivators to accomplishing your goals. So now it's a kidnapping and Clue Gulager calls in with the ransom demand and he says it's not ransom, it's compensation. He wants a million dollars and he wants a million dollars in diamonds. And if he doesn't get a million dollars in diamonds, then Dr. Clapton is going to go to a hostile government. And he knows exactly where they can get these diamonds from, which is from a family called the Vandervoorts, who apparently that's just who they are. They do diamonds. I don't even know how that becomes a family business. But anyway, all they have to go on are these phone calls that they have recorded. And so they put them to the audio people to try to figure them out. They know that one noise is... A, a kind of seabird, a turin. That's great. Seabirds on an island in the Pacific. That's very unique. What about the other sound, the mechanical one? Well, there's also another noise in the background that they can't identify. They're struggling to identify, but if they, they feel if they can, that's going to lead them to the kidnapper's location because the voice analyzer isn't any help to them because Clue Gulager is disguising his voice. It worked, didn't it? Pragmatically speaking, isn't that what counts? The disguised voice sounds like Clue Gulager Soctelium. That's a disguised voice. Voice analyzer couldn't hack it. Because that is the thing. You know from the very beginning who is making those phone calls because it is, it's Clue Gulager on Helium. But you don't expect Five-O to know that. They haven't met Jack Gully yet. But they will because in their search for Dr. Clapton, they obviously they interview everybody at the base. Now, the base is separated. There is a military side. There is a civilian side. And Dr. Clapton was a civilian, and he worked on that side, along with Jack Gully, who used to be on the military side, but now works on the civilian side. We get a glimpse into his motivations when he is rambling at Dr. Clapton about how one day you're useful and the next day you're not, and they don't want guys who win wars anymore, and you end up taking it out on your family, and they end up leaving you. Men will do a kidnapping and commit treason rather than go to therapy. So we have an idea of what motivates Jack Gully. So they interview a bunch of the people that work on the base. Now, here's the thing. We know it's late, later in the day, it is after dark, when they get the ransom call. We know it's later in the Hawaiian day because they make a point of saying when Steve asks Jenny to get Jonathan Kay on the phone, she says it's the middle of the night in Washington, D.C. And he says, I don't care. Wake him up. I don't care either. He is a State Department brick. Then they go to Vanderbort's and it's obviously after business hours because the phone rings and Steve asks Vanderbort to answer it. And he goes, I don't answer the phone after business hours unless I'm expecting a business call. And he says, answer the phone because it's for Steve. Then they have until nine o'clock in the morning to get these diamonds because that's when the phone call is going to happen to tell them where they need to go. So we're, we're assuming this is happening late. And Steve makes a comment to the stock exchange guy because Jonathan Kay arranges for them to sell stock in order to pay for these diamonds. So Steve makes a comment, you have to get up in the middle of the night to do this. And he says, well, he's always willing to get up for a $2 million commission. So when we see them interviewing some of the base staff, it is before sunup. 
it is sometime in the night. They are like getting these people out of bed, I guess, because Jack Gully is there. And we see that the sun has not risen yet. And they talk to Jack Gully. He explains that, no, he was perfectly fine with taking a civilian job after being a career military man because he would rather be a desk jockey than be a dead hero, which we all know is a lie. Then he does another thing that leads to his undoing later is that he explains that, no, I don't live in base housing. I live off base with a girl and her name is Lana Trotter. And here is her phone number and you can give her a call, which Chin does. And he seems unremarkable other than the fact that he kind of comes off as a prick, even when he's trying not to be a prick. And Chin lets him go. Speaking of pricks, I do want to mention that the Jonathan K that we see in a brief scene He's already been woken up by the Pentagon, so he's really unhappy about this current situation. And does he get to be a prick? Not as big of a prick as we're used to seeing him, but he does get to be a little bit prickish when it comes to telling Steve that he has to get Dr. Clapton back at any cost. We know what that means when it comes to Jonathan Kay. He will step all over Steve to make things happen, but Steve manages to get some wiggle room in order to get Dr. Clapton back alive because he is adamant that the most dangerous time for a kidnapping victim is after the ransom is paid. So Jonathan Kay at least gives him some wiggle room. Also, I want to point out that Jonathan K is not the same Jonathan Kay we saw in the previous episode. They literally have two different actors. I don't know why... Um, if Joseph Sorolla wasn't available or whatever, because he's played uh, Jonathan Kay multiple times previously, and he was in the immediately preceding episode, this is a different Jonathan Kay, played by Bill Edwards, and he's shown in shadow the whole time. So I think at this point, we've had like three or four different actors play Jonathan Kay. Anyway, what inevitably leads to Jack Gully is two things. One, Kira Johnson doesn't die. Kira Johnson goes so far as to wake up from his coma. And Steve goes to talk to him. Now, Kira doesn't say a word to Steve, even though Steve tells him that we know it. this was a setup. Your partner played you for a patsy. You were supposed to die. He bragged about how smart he was and how dumb you were. Who is it? And Kira won't say a word. But we know Kira's pissed because they, have, they show the close-up of him making a fist. So as soon as Steve leaves, Kira sits up like the monster on Frankenstein's table and starts taking the medical accoutrements off of his face. The next time we see Kira, he is stalking through the streets of Hawaii. And here, there's two things about this. One, he straight up looks like a horror movie monster. He looks, the makeup and the lighting and the angles they shot him are fabulous. He looks like an old school horror movie villain as he goes staggering through the streets. I mean, he looks zombie-like, which is just incredible. And what's also great is that Steve gets a phone call that Kira has left the hospital against medical advice. And he is like, the doctor that said he couldn't go more than 100 yards and wouldn't make it through the night says that he got up and walked out of there. And I'm just like, Steve, you underestimate how motivating spite and revenge can be. But the other thing I want to point out is that they that he made sure he got dressed before he went on his vengeance quest. And he vengeance quests himself to Lana's apartment. And he breaks in by literally just turning the knob until the knob breaks. That's how he beats the lock. But the chain is still on the door and that bests him to a certain extent. And Lana hears it and she gets up thinking that it's Jack. She goes to open the door and... And Kira bursts in. 
and he unfortunately runs out of steam right as he's about to strangle Lana to get the information of where Jack is. And I just want to point out that Lana was sleeping in her blue eyeshadow and she looked just resplendent. Five-O, of course, comes in. There's dead Kira. And Lana, of course, gives up Jack as the man that Kira was looking for and the man that she lives with. See, here is the thing. If you are abusive to your partner, it's a lot easier for them to just give you up when the police come knocking. I just want to point that out. I don't think it would have mattered much. She did try not to give him up. They pretty much had Jack dead to rights, but doesn't matter. The point is that she gave him up willingly. And you know what? Good on her and her blue eyeshadow. Now 5 knows who they're dealing with. They know they're dealing with Jack Goldie. And they say that to him when he calls in at 9 o'clock in the morning asking about his diamonds. They don't hide the fact that they know who he is, and he's fine with that. Because he still has, in his mind, he, has, he still has an advantage. So he gives the instructions on what they can do with the diamonds. Meanwhile, they are still analyzing these phone calls. Because that is the only way they're going to be able to find where Gully is holding Dr. Clapton. And it turns out that a pump gives him away. You know what else is as resplendent as Lena Trotter's blue eyeshadow? This guest cast. Let's take a closer look at them. As I've been saying, Jack Gully was played by Clue Gulliger. This is his first of two episodes. He has 165 credits going back to 1955 on IMDb. He was Billy the Kid on The Tall Man, Emmett Riker on The Virginian, Bob Hatton on San Francisco International Airport, and Kuda Weber on The McKinsey's of Paradise Cove. He also appeared in episodes of Wanted, Dead or Alive, Have Gun, Will Travel, Laramie, The Untouchables, The Rebel, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Dr. Kildare, Wagon Train, Medical Center, Mod Squad, Bonanza, The Bold Ones, The New Doctors, Mannix, Kung Fu, and Kung Fu The Legend Continues, Ironside, The New Perry Mason, McLeod, Khan, The Streets of San Francisco, Cannon, Phyllis, Ellery Queen, Barnaby Jones, Falcon Crest, Quincy Chips, Automan, Masquerade, The Yellow Rose, Streethawk, Knight Rider, Airwolf, Magna P.I., The Fall Guy, Simon & Simon, Murder, She Wrote, MacGyver, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. He appeared in the movies Tangerine, Piranha 3000, Feast, I'm Gonna Get You Sucka, Tapeheads, Return of the Living Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, both of those are classics, Chattanooga Choo Choo, Touched by Love, The Other Side of Midnight, Force of One, McHugh, Winning, and The Killers. He appeared in the TV movies The Glass House, Mystery in Dracula's Castle, Call to Danger, Smile Jenny, You're Dead, Hit Lady, Ski Lift to Death, Stickin' Together, The Gambler, Skyward, and In the Line of Duty, Ambush in Waco. And he appeared in a miniseries, North and South Book Two, Space, and Black Beauty. As I said, Kira Johnson was played by Michael Conrad. This is his first of two episodes. He's probably best known as Sergeant Phil Esterhouse on Hill Street Blues. He was also Lieutenant McAvan on Del Vecchio. 
He also appeared in episodes of Harbor Master, The Edge of Night, The Naked City, Car 54, Where Are You, Route 66, Perry Mason, Ben Casey, Wagon Train, The Twilight Zone, Flipper, Rawhide, The Dick Van Dyke Show, Gomer Pyle, USMC, My Favorite Martian, Laredo, Bonanza, Gunsmoke, That Girl, The Fugitive, Garrison's Gorillas, Lost in Space, The Virginian, The Immortal, Ironside, The Bold Ones, The Lawyers, All in the Family, Manix, The Bob Newhart Show, Planet of the Apes, Emergency, SWAT, The Rockford Files, Star and Hutch, The Six Million Dollar Man, Little House on the Prairie, Charlie's Angels, The Waltons, Soap, Vegas, Barney Miller, Chips, and The Incredible Hulk. He appeared in the movies Bordello, Harry and Walter Go to New York, The Longest Yard, Scream, Blackula Scream, The Todd Killings, Head On, Monty Walsh, They Shoot Horses, Don't They, and Blackbeard's Ghost. And he appeared in the TV movies Wheeler and Murdoch, Satan's Triangle, Donovan's Kid, and Fires on the Mountain. Johnny Arnett was played by Sam Edwards. He has 161 credits going back to 1937. He appeared in episodes of The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, I Love Lucy, Dragnet, the 50s and 60s versions, Wanted, Dead or Alive, Perry Mason, Have Gun, Will Travel, Laramie, Peter Gunn, Thriller, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Hazel, Ben Casey, Wagon Train, The Andy Griffith Show, Green Acres, Petticoat Junction, The Wild Wild West, Gomer Pyle, USMC, Mayberry, RFD, Lassie, Lancer, The Virginian, That Girl, Bold Ones, The Senator, Dan August, Ironside, Mission Impossible, Mannix, Adam 12, The Rookies, Kolchak the Night Stalker, Gunsmoke, Cannon Swat, Blue Knight, The Streets of San Francisco, Barnaby Jones, Wonder Woman, Dukes of Hazard, Lou Grant, Happy Days, Days of Our Lives, and Little House on the Prairie. He appeared in the movies The Postman Always Rings Twice, Escape to Witch Mountain, Scandalous John, The Beatniks, Operation Pacific, and East Side Kids. And he appeared in the TV movies In Broad Daylight, The Death of Me Yet, Hog Wild, Hurricane, and Incredible Rocky Mountain Race. Lana Trotter was played by Anita Alberts. She also appeared in episodes of That Girl, Bracken's World, Room 222, Banyan, and Cannon, and she appeared in the movie House Calls. Mac Mozu was played by John Farius. This is third of four episodes. We also saw him in The Box and Wednesday's Ladies Free. Dr. Clapton was played by Albert Harris. This is his second of six episodes. We also saw him in Paniolo. Jonathan Kay, as I said, was played by Bill Edwards in this episode. This is his fourth of 17 episodes. The Colonel was played by Thomas Norton. This is his third of three episodes. He was also in Samurai and Force of Waves. Vandervoort was played by Wright Esser. This is his eighth of 10 episodes. And The Surgeon was played by Ted Norbriga. This is his second of four episodes. He was also in The Box. And that is Fools Die Twice. I enjoy this episode because you know me, I love a big plot. I love the fact that we have a payroll heist as a diversion for a kidnapping. I love the fact that there is copious amounts of Clue Gulliger because I'm never not going to like something with Clue Gulliger in it. Even if it's terrible, I'm still going to like the Clue Gulliger aspect of it. I absolutely love Kira Johnson basically rising from the dead and going to the streets of Honolulu to seek his vengeance. It's just so well done. It does. It looks like a horror film. It's just great. And of course, we have the great investigative parts of this, particularly when it comes to using the phone call tapes to find where Dr. Clapton is. 
overall, it's a pretty fun episode. It's a pretty exciting episode, especially the hostage situation. It was a pretty intense firefight. Then we have the walk out to the helicopter and the subsequent end of that situation. And meanwhile, the whole time, we know that there is a kidnapping happening as well. So great excitement and tension. It's not boring at all. You're going to want to give this one a watch. Oh, the doctor said that he couldn't go more than 100 yards. Isn't he the same doctor who said he wouldn't last the night? And that is episode 54 of Book of Mandano. Two great episodes that both featured big elaborate plots. One enacted out of backup necessity. The other one, actually, that was the plot. But both were definitely a good time. You know me. I'm never not going to like a big plot. Thank you so much for listening. You know I always appreciate your ears and your patience with all of the background noise. If you'd like to find me online, you can do that by going to akakikiwrites.com. It is the home of Bookham Dano. You can also find me at my blog, kikiwritesabout.com. And if you want my clue, Gulager thoughts in real time, and you can't find me on the hell site, formerly known as Twitter, you can find me on Blue Sky at Kiki Writes. So make sure your contingency plan is a big one and never underestimate someone's thirst for vengeance. Until next time, aloha.